Anna. Tom. Guess what? What? We're on series three of Nature's a Hoot. Really? Yeah, starting now. Listen, here comes the theme tune. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to Nature's a Hoot with Tom Marath and Hannah Shaw. This is the wildlife podcast from the Hawk Conservancy Trust. We're all about birds at the Trust, but birds don't live alone. They are part of a whole ecosystem. So the podcast is our chance to take a more general look at wildlife beyond birds. And you don't need to be an expert. We've got that covered as we bring to you some of the greatest voices in wildlife research and conservation. We're a little haven for nature lovers everywhere. We are indeed. And to kick off our, would you believe it, third season of the show. Wow, how did that happen? I really don't know. Now we'll be talking to our Marion Pavia Award winner, Jamie Carlino, from Napa Valley, California, where she's studying barn owls. Yeah, I can't wait for that. And there's so much to pack in that we probably had better make a start, haven't we? So how are you, Hannah? It's been a long time. We've had a long break uh, from doing Nature's a Hoot episodes. I think the last one was back, well, back in the summer, in September, I think. Yeah. What have you been up to? It feels like it's been ages and it felt like we were never going to start again, Tom. I thought you were going to say it felt like you were never going to see me again and I was going to be very heartfelt and touched <laughs> well, by that too. what you were saying. <laughs> No, it has been a really long time, um, but we are back uh, for the 1st of January, for the new year, 2022. Yeah. And uh, we're we're starting as we mean to go on, really, with a very, very interesting topic this time, which I'm really excited to get into. Absolutely. Um, But also, as some listeners might remember, there's also other things happening in my life, which I was, I've been talking to you about a couple of, uh, couple of minutes while we were getting ready to record this podcast. Uh, baby is on its way and as we record this at the beginning of December there's every chance that by the time this goes out there will be there will be a baby (gasps) there will be a little baby Marath in the world can we just say Um, you said baby is on its way it's not actually on its way right now (laughs) no no. (laughs) just recording the podcast while Amy's in (laughs) labour Sorry, Amy. Um, really important podcast to record an episode for. So if you if you let me know when it gets to the good bit, then <laughs> it's all very, very exciting. Um, but what I will say is that um, capitalism is rife within the having a new baby community because I'm constantly, constantly advertised to you really need this particular cot or yeah. you need this toy or you need this learning activity for when they're much older than they definitely are now because they're not even born yet uh, in in particular life insurance policies which <laughs> i've never seen before obviously when you're like a single person they're like nope you'll you'll be fine yeah christmas must feel weird because well can we talk about well we know that we're recording before christmas yeah where we christmas is still but, to come but for us does it feel weird for you because christmas is because obviously the big thing in the future <clears throat> excuse me is that is the baby coming does christmas feel yes. like this hurdle you need to get over and then when christmas is done it's going to be like oh my goodness it really Absolutely is it coming does. i was talking to amy about this today that it's like everyone else is getting excited for christmas and i'm yeah. like <laughs> christmas that's nothing it's just like in the way yeah um so this is the first year where both amy and i have you know, it is beginning of December and we've done nothing yeah. for Christmas. No, not one decoration has gone up, much to our cat Cosmo's dismay. Because oh, no. he usually likes like throwing the baubles around. And climbing um, the tree. And climbing the tree, yeah. How's things with you? What what have you been up to? Um, yeah, not bad. Not not much to report, really, to be honest. Work's going very well. It's very busy. Um and I am getting ready for Christmas because everyone seems to be getting ready so early and yeah. it's I'm trying oh, do you know what it's frustrating because I'm trying so hard I'm trying so hard to be eco-friendly and have an eco-friendly Christmas but it's virtually impossible because yeah all those adverts but also people want presents <laughs> I mean they do selfish <laughs> bunch aren't they yeah it's really hard <clears throat> and trying to find you know 
secondhand presents or sustainably made presents it just adds that extra layer of um time that i don't really have <laughs> yeah time and time and stress but yeah. good on you for for trying to do yeah. the right thing I mean, and and actually sometimes you can find you know things that are second hand that are way better yeah, than you totally can. what you would have just picked off the shelf you they, they're usually can. kind of a bit quaint and different aren't they so and i suppose as this is going to be going out on january the first any new year's resolutions <gasps> that you can you can think you might new end year's up giving yourself well, I have thought that I do really want to do something in 2022, some sort of um, challenge or, uh, you know, achievement that I can really give myself a good pat on the back for. Um, I was thinking about signing up to do a half marathon or some sort of swimming event because I've been doing a lot of swimming, outdoor swimming in the cold. Have you? Yeah, well, have you? Not, in, not, not in skins, uh, in wetsuit. Um, but the last time I went was just before it got really cold. So I haven't been, um, I haven't been in the last sort of two weeks. Um, Mm. but yeah, I've been getting into my outdoor swimming more. Um, so I might try and do some sort of outdoor swimming event next year. That is super exciting. That might be my resolution. And does it, it, lots of people report health benefits of this wild Oh, honestly, it's amazing. Yeah. Um. Just swimming in and outdoors, really. It doesn't even have to be wild. Just swimming. Well, I guess it does if it's outdoors. But <laughs> uh, like swimming in the sea. We went to um Lyme Regis for a week in I think September October time, and just getting in the sea is just amazing. It's a great feeling, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I love it. I mean, it took me right back to childhood that day. I mean, if you know, people listen to the last episode or maybe the one before that, they'll know about the tooth that we found on Bournemouth. Oh, yeah. We won't go back to that. But the kind of jump in the waves of the things was, oh, was incredible. Wow. And that was kind of just before the point that Amy was like, it's probably not safe for me to be going in the water anymore. So <laughs> we haven't done that for a while. But that's that's a great resolution. I really like yeah. that. Yeah. What's yours? I think I would... I saw and was quite interested by a uh, nature writing course. I quite like writing and I'd like oh. to have some kind of purpose to some of the writing that I'm doing. So I'd, I'd quite like to do a little bit of that as a resolution. Maybe, you know, write That's something great. once a month or once a week or whatever. Just something that kind of takes my fancy about the wildlife and nature that I've seen. So, yeah, I'm going to have that as my New Year's resolution. And if I come up with anything good, I will report back. What but do you yeah. like writing about? Do you like writing about your exploits in the nature world or do you like writing like factual I like writing quite um quite creatively I guess about the things you know like uh, wildlife and nature so so an event that's coming up actually imminently the winter woodland lights Mm -hmm. that that show is all about the wonder of wildlife within the woods and so kind of well part of my job was to put that all together kind of poetically really trying to demonstrate the beauty of the wildlife and so that i really like that so it's kind of kind of prose kind of a bit sciencey but ultimately just to kind of instill this passion about about wildlife in in britain so i think that's that's a good resolution i've just you know kind of just thought that up but i but i did think about that a couple of weeks ago and it's just come back to me so thank goodness for nature's a hoot i'll I'll look forward to reading it yeah well you're you're my proofreader so So we spoke to Jamie Carlino uh, for this very first episode of our third series of Nature's a Hoot. Um, I think we should probably have a listen to that interview, shouldn't we? Let's do it. We are joined by Jamie Carlino and Jamie is our Marion Pavia Award winner for 2021. So we are super excited to introduce you to Jamie and hear a little bit more about her work now, Jamie is working with Barn Owls, so that's brilliant, and obviously links really nicely to the work that we do in the UK with Barn Owls. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you. I'm so honoured to be here. I'm really looking forward to chatting about Barn Owls with you guys. Yeah, amazing. It's lovely to have you. Um, Thank you. Where, where in the world are you now? Because you're, you're not close by, are you? 
No, I'm not at all. Um, so I live in a small town called Arcata, and I'm in California, the United States. Um, that's where my school, Humboldt State University, is at. And uh, my research takes place in Napa Valley, California, which is about five hours south of where I live and go to school. Um, but yeah, I live in a very small town. Historically, it was a logging town. So um, there's lots of redwood forests. We sort of live behind the redwood curtain, as many people would say, um, but not a lot of vineyards where I live, surprisingly. So we do commute quite a ways to get to our study areas. Hannah, we've gone global. Yeah, it's amazing. I was thinking that California. the other day. <laughs> wow. How's the weather there? <laughs> um, yeah, that's funny. Um, so right now where I live, um, we generally get more rain than other parts of California. So we're that kind makes, of getting into the rainy better. season. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking out the window now. It's been absolutely dreadful. <laughs> yeah, it's horrific I know we, today. You Brits have a, a real, um, a bit of a reputation for just talking about the weather. But if someone's <laughs> beaming in from California, you've got to ask how the weather is. <laughs> yeah, then the weather in Napa is actually very different than here. Um, it's it's much drier and um, sunnier and warmer, especially in the summer season. Jamie, tell us a bit about yourself. And so you said you're at Humboldt State University, but maybe you could explain just a bit about, about your project. Yeah, um, so... I guess I got here to this point. Um, I actually learned about Humboldt State University when I was in high school. I was going to this really cool high school that was pretty different from normal high schools here in California. Um, I would get bussed over to that school and they had career oriented labs. And so I was in the environmental science lab and that's where I was first really exposed to a career working with wildlife. Before that, I mean, I had always loved animals. Um, I had a special fascination with birds, but I didn't really know that one could make a career out of that until high school. And so at this high school, we would do research projects. Um, and uh, I also got involved with a wildlife rehabilitation and education center there. And so that's where I first learned about Humboldt State University and the possibility of working with wildlife as a career. And that's also really my first like intimate experience with barn owls. That was the first species that I raised um, working with the wildlife rehab. And then I also had the privilege of raising a barn owl that was gonna be used for education. And that was a really special experience. And so from then on, um, owls in general, I've been really fascinated and passionate about um, barn owls hold a special place in my heart. So I was really fortunate when I got to HSU, um, I took a course called Upland Habitat Ecology. And in that class, we just focused on essentially any type of habitat that isn't a wetland. So pretty broad, um, but that's where I was exposed to the possibility of agriculture as um, what we call sort of a working landscape. And working landscapes, that just includes any sort of landscape like agriculture, rangelands, forests that are used for recreation or timber harvest, any sort of landscape that um, has a job, so to speak. Um, and so that's where I first learned about how working lands can help wildlife and help us conserve wildlife as so much of our planet is composed of agriculture. And so if we can make space for wildlife in agriculture, I think the conservation potential there is huge. Um, and when I took that class, I took that class with my master's advisor, Matt Johnson, and um, I had known some people in the Central Valley who had nest boxes on a pistachio orchard. And I was interested in um, doing a project for my honors thesis as part of the wildlife undergraduate degree at Humboldt State University. Every single student has to complete a research project on their own. And um, so that was kind of my plan with that. And so I worked with Matt and this person that I was familiar with to do a study on nest box selection in this pistachio orchard in the Central Valley, which was only about 30 minutes from where I grew up. So from there, working with Matt, for my undergraduate honors thesis, um, I was able to transition well when a position in his graduate lab opened up um, studying barn owls on this long-term project that 
has been going on. We call ourselves the Humboldt State University Barnall Research Team. That sounds amazing. And um, it really uh, aligns with a lot of the work that we do in terms of our mission. So a lot of our UK work um, with nest boxes, the work we do with nest boxes is all on like landowner. Yeah, certainly that we work on in terms of where we put nest boxes is privately owned land um, that's usually farms. And yeah, like you said, it's so, so important because such an, a massive area of the world is covered in agriculture. We have to absolutely work, with it, excuse me, we have to absolutely work with it to, for wildlife really, don't we? And it's there for the taking. I mean, it's, re- it's really good habitat for some species. So yes, yeah, yeah. it's, it's really interesting to hear that it's, although obviously it's probably a completely different scale, the farms that you work on or the vineyards that you're working on, really nice to see that aligning yeah Um, that's honestly one of the most interesting things because where I grew up in the Central Valley that's about eight hours south of where I live and go to school now and the agriculture there is the scale of agriculture there is is huge Um, there's yeah it's it's pretty crazy so that's what I grew up thinking all agriculture was like and not until I came to HSU and took that class with Matt did I realize that not all agriculture is like that, but yeah. the, there are some of the vineyards in Napa that we work in that are very large scale, but a majority of them are very small. Okay. Um, some of them only have a couple nest boxes on the vineyard. Um, and so that's been really interesting for me getting to see that firsthand, such a big difference from what mm-hmm. I grew up seeing. That's really interesting. So it's what is it wine growers that put up the nest boxes? That's a really good question. So um, they do put the nest boxes up. A lot of times people will approach us, us wanting to, they want us to install the nest boxes, but we actually don't dabble in that. There are groups like there's a wildlife rehab in Napa and in Sonoma, which is a nearby county adjacent county actually um that do have programs where they will build and install nest boxes for a cost and so we don't dabble in that but um the vineyard managers and owners have installed all of the nest boxes so we didn't really have control over like where they were placed or how many they put up or anything like that oh i see okay Mm -hmm. so that probably makes it a bit tricky to in terms of they wouldn't have had the background knowledge of um, perhaps how many owls might be in the area or how many would be needed for that size land, that sort of landscape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, That's kind of why I think some of the previous work in the lab and current work is so exciting because it provides a good opportunity to study nest box selection. And Mm. by that, I just mean like, There's a lot of variety in the nest boxes themselves. Like we have some boxes that are plastic. We have some that are wooden. The wooden ones vary in their size, how tall the pole that they're on is, whether they're on a pole or a tree, if there's a perch on the outside. And then there's also a lot of variation in the local um, and much broader landscape around the nest box. So it presents a really nice opportunity to study what the owls maybe prefer when they're looking for which nest box to occupy. Hmm. So once the once the barn owls move in, obviously that's always the hope for the people that have, have got the land here. Once they move moved in, the main hope is really for them to act as kind of pest control, or do you think it's a it's kind of just a nice thing to have on the land there to have barn owls flying around? Because it's beautiful to watch and it feels nice that you're helping to support wildlife. Do you think it's a bit of both or more one than the other? I think it's definitely a mix of both people. I think initially install nest boxes, hoping that they'll reduce the number of rodents in the vineyards. Um, But it's also just like they, they genuinely like having the owls around. And I think it, it's also good for um, what we call like eco tourism, like Mm. people that visit the vineyards, like, or even people that buy wine, um, Mm. like, you know, they might be more likely to buy wine or visit a winery or just 
enjoy being at a winery more if there's nest boxes there and they know that the owls are in the nest boxes. So it's definitely a combination of both, which is really nice um, that, that the farmers do, they, they care about the owls and they like having them there for more reason than just pest control. Yeah, it's definitely a good look, isn't it? If you if yeah. you look like you're managing to attract the owls and you know what you're doing with that, then perhaps it shows that you've got a real care in what you do, which is you know obviously good for everybody. Um, from the side of view, the from the viewpoint of the pest control, do many people report that it is an effective way to reduce pests on the the space? So surprisingly, there aren't a ton of empirical studies. Um, supporting barn owls as like meaningful ways of controlling rodents but they're just aspects of their biology and ecology that support them as like a real meaningful component of integrated pest management those being um they're they're not as territorial as other raptors i'm sure you guys know that and have observed that so that enables them to nest in higher density so you can have mm. more nest boxes in an agricultural area and actually have them be occupied as long as there's enough food for them um and then they're just they consume rodents that's you know pretty much what their diet <clears throat> consists of um and then they have really large clutches and sometimes multiple broods a year. So there are just certain aspects of their biology and ecology that intuitively you would think like, oh, this bird is going to help reduce the number of rodents in my vineyard. Um, but not many studies have actually quantified that. Um, and one previous student in our lab, Dane, he put cameras in nest boxes and got video footage of the prey that the owls were bringing in. And so he was able to estimate the number of rodents that they were removing in a single breeding season. And that number was around a thousand, um, given the average number of fledglings being 3.62. Um, and then they were able to use those data to then extrapolate into like the entire year using conservative estimates of adult survival and adult consumption in the non-breeding season that a family of barn owls can remove around 3,500 rodents each year. And if you expand that to like the number of nest boxes in Napa Valley, that's, that's a big number. Um, but without, yeah. without like estimates of rodent population sizes, it's kind of hard to tell if, if they're it actually- makes very much of a dent. Yeah, yeah, they're actually controlling rodent populations or if they're just removing rodent populations. Mm. And so that's one of the current students in the lab, Ashley Hansen. She she did a lot of rodent trapping. She did a mark recapture study. She had a um, vineyard with boxes and then a vineyard without. And she did find that the vineyard with nest boxes had significantly less gophers than the one without. Um, so I think having more studies that aim to quantify that um, are really interesting. But I think if you would ask the farmers, I think they, they, they do say that they see a reduction in the number of rodents. Um, yeah. But they're, I mean, they're never going to go away, the mm -hmm. rodents. So um, we do get people like we have one vineyard where it's in the South Valley and he has 27 nest boxes and almost a hundred percent occupancy in those nest wow. boxes. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, really cool. Um, but, but there's still gophers there, of course. So he's actually looking to install more nest boxes. So you're saying gophers. Now in my head, a gopher is like significantly bigger than what we would say our native barn yeah. in the UK is catching. Well, we're, we expect them to catch a lot of short-tailed field voles, mice. This is, this is an animal that's that's larger than a brown rat, isn't it? A gopher? Um, I don't know if larger than a brown rat, but they're they're really large. They're, yeah. Yeah. But they, these barn owls are bigger than our European barn owl, aren't they? Quite they considerably. Are, yeah. Yeah. But they, they it, interestingly enough, I mean, they can like prey switch. So they will adjust mm. their, their diet preferences based on what's available. So they do also consume voles and mice. Um, in our study system but mm. they also eat a lot of gophers so that range of prey items that they can they can take probably makes them more of a 
successful pest controller than ours might be if yeah. you've got problems with rats or something barn owls are probably not your answer no. to that problem <laughs> because they're that that much smaller but no, that's really interesting mm-hmm. so specifically the gophers that the um farmers report a problem with they eat do they eat something they don't want them to eat yeah they'll like girdle the vines which yeah. makes them die or they'll they'll feed on the root structures as well yeah which kills the kills the vines i have to say though gophers don't have it that easy in the world any anytime i read anything about a predator <laughs> yeah. everything seems to eat a gopher like <laughs> We talk a lot about um, great grey owls as well and snowy oh. owls in our demonstrations each day yeah. in the flying displays. And I feel like I say gopher more times than I care to mention. <laughs> Poor uh-huh. gopher. But now you're saying that there's loads of them and we need to control them. So <laughs> I feel as sorry for them as I do. But Yeah, side note, I really love great grey owls. That is also oh. a species. Yeah, that what is, a cool bird. Oh, one of my favourites. Yeah, they're immense. Maybe one for the future. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. There's like a really small, I know we're talking about barn owls, but quick detour. There's a really small population. We can always detour for a great gray owl. (laughs) There's a really small population in California that that are separated from all the other great gray owls. And um, and so yeah, they're they're I feel like they're exceptionally special here. Definitely. And you've seen them. I have um I actually did some work working for the Forest Service, which is a federal agency here in the United States. Um, and I was doing raptor surveys and one of our species was great gray owl. So I've seen the fledglings um, and then I've seen only one adult, but it was at dusk. And so I just saw a silhouette. And so I'm dying to see an adult like in, in good lighting where I yeah. can actually like- They understand. are like a ghost, aren't they? You know, well, you know I've obviously never- had the opportunity to see one in the wild but even just working with our birds we often fly them at night as well as part of our kind of routines and to just if you don't know where they are if you don't keep tabs on them they're impossible to spot they're just <laughs> yeah. incredible incredible birds yeah amazing some are barn owls but as we say we digress <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so tell us um jamie about what you're what you're looking at in the barn owls in the in the landscape in the napa valley Sure. Um, So my thesis, there's really two main components. I'm really interested in their preferences in nest boxes. So previous students have identified their preferences. Um, We know that in Napa Valley specifically, um, that they prefer nest boxes that are pretty tall, like around three meters high, um, wooden nest boxes and boxes that are facing away from the sun and then Mm -hmm. for the surrounding landscape they prefer more grasslands which makes sense given their their history and their ecology Um, so I'm interested in how those preferences relate to reproductive success Um, there's a, um, a hypothesis called the adaptive breeding habitat selection which postulates that the the preferences and habitats that animals have, you'd expect them to be adaptive. So I'm interested in whether the same elements that the owls prefer can predict reproductive success. Um, And so far it's looking like they don't predict reproductive success as well. Um, But I'm also only working with one year's worth of reproductive success data, which hopefully, you know, getting this additional season's worth of data will be really helpful. Um, but there's not a lot of variation in reproductive success that was explained by those nest box preferences. Um, and so that's where the second component of my thesis comes in. And that is how intrinsic quality of an individual can influence reproductive success. And if if those elements predict reproductive success better, or if some combination of habitat and intrinsic quality of an individual explain more of that variability in annual reproductive success. Um, So yeah, that's, I guess, just sort of the little elevator pitch of my thesis. (laughs) (laughs) And when, so when you're talking about the, like the quality of the individual, what are kind of your markers for those? Like how do you define you know, this, this particular barn owl is of, of kind of greater quality than, than the next. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So by individual quality, um, meaning um, like genetics or just quality within an individual owl that isn't explained by like habitat, although the two are likely very correlated with individuals of higher quality, maybe being able to secure higher quality habitats. But we use, um, there's been a lot of research done in Switzerland and even uh, in Israel where they've identified these elements of plumage variation that relate to intrinsic quality. And so those include the breast plumage coloration, as you guys know, barn owls, um, the pheomelanin variation in barn owls is really beautiful. They can be very white to a really beautiful, like rusty red color. Um, and then also the melanin spots on their breast. Um, so the variation in size of those spots and how many spots there are on their breast. There have been relationships identified between that and intrinsic quality. Um, and then in addition to those, so I guess I should clarify that we actually, these are studies that have been done in Switzerland. And so we're kind of assuming that those same relationships hold here. Okay. Um, we are going to quantify plumage variation to see if we see some of those same patterns and like habitat preferences and prey preferences. That's my lab mate, Lauda. She's working on that study. Um, but so under that assumption, um, those are the measures that we're using for intrinsic quality. And then we're also including, um, different morphometrics indicating like body size, maybe larger owls are of greater quality, or maybe that relationship is different between males and females. Um, and then also the age of the birds. So we've aged all of the birds that we've captured and banded. Um, our hypothesis is that maybe birds that have reached an older age, greater survival, maybe they're of higher quality as well. Mm. Yeah, well, it would make sense, wouldn't it? Because they've survived to that point they're capable of surviving the longest and have got the know-how of the the local surroundings and do you find that there's the the relationship of spots on the chest to tell you whether they're male or female or not because this has been a something for me i don't know about you hannah it's kind of some people say yes and some people say no and i've never heard like a definitive answer i was always told that the females have a more spotty chest than the males do you think that's right as well yeah, uh, I also have gotten like mixed advice on that. It's something that I've been told by some people, but other people have said like, no, you shouldn't trust that. I think as a general rule of thumb, that's fine. Okay. Um, we, we haven't done any like genetic work, but in our research, we're working with them in the breeding season. So we sex our birds, females, they have a brood patch, the males don't. Um, and so I, I think as a general rule of thumb, that's fine. Um, but we are going to quantify that difference. So we'll see like if males have, um, a significantly different, like red, green, blue values indicating like they're paler than the females or if their average spot size or average number of spots is significantly different than females, um, that would support that. But just anecdotally, I would say that, of course, there's variation. Um, like some of the females will be paler, but they'll just have more spots. Um, but then there are also some males that are second year males. They're generally more buffy in their breast mm. before they go through that first molt. So that is something to keep an eye out for as well. Those kind of in-between situations where you could look at a second year male and mm. Um, an adult female that just has less red on her breast and you might be conflicted, but I think Jury's that's a general out. rule. Yeah. Where am I? Well, you answered about the spottiness. That's really Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, I was trying to get a sense of sort of how, I mean, it's difficult for us to imagine given um we live on a tiny island, but I just wondered how is our barn owls doing quite well in that area? Um, and are they in decline or um, are they doing all right? 
Um, so we, our focus is only on birds that are in nest boxes and there's so many more nest boxes in Napa Valley than the ones that we actually monitor. But based on the nest boxes that we monitor, um, which is about 280 nest boxes valley-wide, um, and then together with our, our range of occupancy rates, it's been as low as like 31% in the first year of the study, which was 2015, but then reached a high of 51% in 2018. Mm. So doing the math there, you can kind of get an estimate. But um, more recently, we've started um, an exploratory analysis on the side using these estimates of annual reproductive success that we collected together with um, estimates of adult and juvenile survival from the literature, which granted are in a different location. Um, those two things together, you can do a little algebra and calculate lambda, which is the finite rate of population growth. And so if that value is above one, that indicates you know, a positive growth. And then mm. if it's equal to one, then that, that line on a figure would just be flat. They're just sustaining. Um, and then if that value is negative, that would indicate populations in decline. And so we found with, with our estimates and conservative estimates of adult and juvenile survival that their population is slightly increasing. Mm. Um, but we still plan to do a sensitivity analysis and all for, we're just going to be like modifying those numbers and in, in increments, increasing it and decreasing it to see under what circumstances the population might be in decline. Because um, it's a really important thing to consider, you know, farmers are installing nest boxes, but we want to make sure that the nest boxes are actually good for the owls. And yeah. if we're going to be promoting it as a, a mutually beneficial conservation and management tool, we should have an idea of of how the owls are doing and whether they're able to replace themselves in those nest boxes. But we don't have any data on natural nest cavities. I'm sure there are still some owls that nest in natural nest cavities, albeit probably very few. Um, I think that the population based on that super um, brief exploratory analysis, the populations are increasing, but we'll see under what circumstances that might not be the case. Hmm. Well, certainly here in the UK, talking about having barn owls as pest control, one of the issues is other forms of pest control. So rodenticides and yeah. you know, other chemicals used within our, our countryside and within the ecosystems they live in um, is, a, is a problem for them. Is that the same where you are? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, our lab doesn't really, we don't have the means to focus or like the background knowledge of studying rodenticide but sure. it is a, a huge passion of mine um i dedicated a lot of my free time to a, a local nonprofit, or not really a local nonprofit, but i started sort of a regional chapter of a nonprofit called raptors of the solution i don't know if you guys have heard of that nonprofit, but yes. um so it's been um a side thing that I dedicate a lot of time to, and it really interests me. And um, in Napa, I don't know if their local rehabs send in the owls that they get that have died um, for testing of rodenticides. Okay. Um, it can be quite costly and there's no like funding that subsidizes that for the wildlife rehabs. Um, so they're, they have to pay for it themselves. Um, but we do have some collaborators in another area of California at a university called UC Davis, who, um, Brianna, she had, she's doing a study and um, she's looking for the presence of anticoagulant rodenticides in the blood of nestlings, um, which is tricky as I'm sure, you know, you guys are aware that the most definitive way to test for ARs is using a liver sample, but you can't do that unless you have a dead animal. So using blood can be tricky if, if there's not like a, a real recent pulse of ARs, you wouldn't detect it in the blood. So they haven't found any, or maybe like one nestling that had ARs in their blood. Okay. Um, but they're definitely like farmers are still using them and there's nothing special about our owls that make them immune to those toxic effects. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it's happening. It just isn't really being documented. 
Hmm. Um, you were talking. Uh, you were talking about the um, how the barn owls are doing. Then it made it was made me think about barn owls in the UK tend to, as we were talking about earlier, like rely on the populations of short-tailed voles, and I wondered, and they tend to fluctuate the population sizes each year with how well the voles are doing, which is obviously dependent on lots of factors. I wondered if that was similar with um, the barn owls in that area or in the US in your experience with the gophers as well, if there was any sort of fluctuation from year to year. Yeah, I think I think that is the case. Um, one thing that we've kind of been talking about lately is getting into more of like the rodent population component, be it through like surveys of the farmers or yeah. doing more rodent trapping or something like that. Because you do see that trend when the study first started, occupancy was at a low and it gradually increased until 2018 where it hit a high and then mm. it declined. And then now it's on its way back up again. So just based on that information on our occupancy rates, I think, mm. I think it's likely that is happening um, there were also really catastrophic wildfires in the area, um, which a past student, Allison, she kind of, I guess, took advantage of that really terrible situation and was able to look at nest box selection and um, where the owls were hunting pre-fire and then post-fire. And, and she did find that those, those fire edges that owls <clears throat> they would select nest boxes on those fire edges likely because there were more rodents mm. during that green up effect where mm. the vegetation was burned. And then once you get the first rains and spring comes, you start getting that new um, fresh green vegetation growth that the rodents really like. And the owls were picking up on that and focusing their attention on those areas. So I think mm. it's, I think it's likely that that is happening here as well. In the areas where it's more natural habitat, there are barn owls living there. They do they. You said that they will um, obviously naturally they would use natural nest sites. What do what do they normally nest in? So, um, like pre-colonization and development of the valley, there were it was so many oaks, um, uh -huh. and so traditionally they would just nest in cavities of trees mm. um but now that the valley is so developed and um, much of the oak has been ripped out for development and agriculture i think a large proportion of the population probably uses nest boxes yeah that's really interesting and yeah, that's similar to us, isn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah. You know, we reckon that, a, that a, the larger percentage of barn owls in the UK rely on man-made structures, you know, rely on, you know, humans to be around in order to survive, which is... Well, I think yeah, interesting. they've had sort of two waves of it here as well, haven't they? Because they would have originally nested in trees and then they took on nesting in barns yeah <laughs> a lot and then now yeah, we're are... now we're knocking down all the barns as well like old dilapidated barns so yeah, yeah so they've sort of had it in two hits <laughs> which is yeah, unfortunate I'm, I'm curious is it like is it pretty special for you guys to see barn owls still nesting in barns or like I think like church towers or like steeples is that at this point is it pretty special to see that or is it yeah, I think so. I think you do still get it. You do definitely still get it. But the work that our conservation biologist does, off, I mean, he will put nest boxes in barns. So in very big barns where he knows that there might be barn owls have originally nested, he'll put nest boxes in there for them. Um, but yeah, you do still see them nesting in barns for sure. But obviously with like the industrialization, those older sort of dilapidated barns that do have an area which, at the top which would be suitable for barn owls they don't exist so much anymore they're just these massive huge things that yeah. maybe aren't quite so conducive to um building a nest uh, yeah and the habitat that <clears throat> and the habitat that lives alongside it. it is not necessarily yeah. ideal for barn owls either so yeah kind of still few and far between probably yeah yeah for sure um i think they're definitely one of the speed this probably the species that we work with that um 
uses the nest boxes the most so it has the highest occupancy rate so we work with four different species the uh barn owl tawny owl little owl and kestrel um, yeah i think that's generally the case here as well um i know just generally speaking like in the u.s and in california specifically um people will install kestrel boxes um and then we see an interesting variety of species occupying the barn owl nest boxes. We yeah. see Western screech owls, um, Northern flickers, which is like a species of um, woodpecker. Um, we get uh, wood ducks. Um, yeah, we get then, ducks in ours as well. <laughs> yeah, and then also we found uh, lots of squirrels that will yeah. build nests in there. Um, but I think the most interesting one this past season was pigeon okay yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I think ours we definitely get a lot of jackdaws which are a corvid a small mm -hmm. corvid um we get yeah ducks I know um Matt our biologist has found ducks nesting in tawny owl boxes and yeah squirrels lots of gray squirrels um and actually did have one barn owl box a couple of years ago that had barn owls nesting in it and kestrels nesting in it at the same time. I was hoping you were going to bring that up. <laughs> oh, wow. Amazing. So yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah, that was very cool. So I, I guess the barn owls were at the back and the kestrels were on the front. I'm not really sure. But um, yeah, they I just both wonder successfully how that relationship went along. Yeah, probably fraught. <laughs> whether they got on or whether, you know, do they have an understanding, like a knowing <laughs> look between them or was it like constant... At yeah. yeah that's crazy yeah so i know that obviously this uh this research is ongoing and you're kind of still in the thick of it what uh is it kind of too early to say what comes next for you as an individual as a researcher as a as a, as a scientist what what happens next um i'm like not really to? sure yet um i guess my long-term goal is to work for a non-profit um doing raptor research and you know furthering raptor conservation efforts um but in terms of like which species or where that is i have absolutely no idea um yeah i mean i have a fascination and passion for owls but i also really love vultures especially old world vultures um yes we, we love, love them i <laughs> <laughs> never had the privilege to work with them or even see them but um hmm. it's interesting to hear that you've done some um raptor rehabilitation stuff as well because obviously that's a big part of the work we do on site at the trust as well um was yeah. did you find that there was certain species you'd see more often than others coming into the the facility in terms of birds of prey mm -hmm. yeah so we got um i would say it's pretty reflecting of the just like how common certain species are on the landscape yeah. like we got a lot of barn owls a lot of red-tailed hawks red-shouldered hawks some great horned owls um and then like the more we get occasionally eagles. Um, wow. We get sometimes saw-wet owls, pygmy owls, mm. screech owls, of <clears> course. <throat> um, but yeah, I would say it's pretty reflecting of the, the which species are more common on the landscape yeah. in urban areas. I definitely heard that said by uh, Cedric or, or any of the team that work here in the hospital, that just because you're not having individuals coming into the hospital it doesn't necessarily mean that the the population is is all right because they're not coming mm. into the hospital it can actually mean the opposite that there's there's none coming in to be treated because there aren't very many of them out there maybe or they're just in areas that people like aren't finding them yeah. as much like we sure. get a lot of birds that you know people just like have in their yards or whatever but fewer birds maybe from like agricultural areas where there aren't as many people out to find them sure yeah, we have that definitely with uh, tawny owls because, I mean, I'm sure um, you know, I don't know whether any owl species in America do a similar thing, but they, uh, tawny owls branch, so they come out of the nest before they're ready to properly fledge. Mm -hmm. And they're often, they'll often go onto the ground or onto low branches and people find them and don't realise that they probably could just pop them on a branch near the nest and they'd be fine. Be still be fed by the parents 
Um, so during every summer, without fail, during summer, we get plenty of tawny owl chicks coming in. And then obviously once they've been brought in, then we can't really take them back. So it means we rehabilitate, well, we rehabilitate them and, and Cedric them. and then re-release them. Yeah. Yeah. And Cedric uses a very cute little um, puppet to feed them so that they don't imprint on and him. A towel. <laughs> and a towel, towel over his head. It's the most yeah. bizarre thing to watch. Like <laughs> I... a, it's the saddest puppet show in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As he reaches the puppet, for a bit of chicken for the. I think the puppet the must be about twenty-five years old because it's, it's, it's a relic of the, <laughs> the trust. It really it should have been in a museum. I think. Yeah. How many owls are alive today because of that owl puppet? Yeah, many, many owls. <laughs> many, many. But yeah, it's. I, I mean, it's sort of. We're only covering a small area, and we'll get between sixty and a hundred tawny owl chicks during the summer. Wow, um, that's a lot. Yeah, which is a lot. Yeah, we. We see the same thing in the rehab that I would work in. Um, I think the yeah, the biggest thing was not only convincing people that they're fine, they're just yeah, in that awkward like teenager phase where they're exploring exactly. and they can't quite fly yet, but they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's like one thing to convince them of that, but then to also convince them like please keep your dog or your cat inside while they're going through that development phase is a whole other thing. So yeah, yeah we'd get people that would just bring them in anyways, because they didn't want to keep their dog or their cats inside. So yeah. Yeah. So um, do you have, do you have like a bucket list species that you would really like to see or really like to work with? Other than a great grey owl in the film. Yeah, not a great grey owl. I can't say a great grey owl. Um, <laughs> hmm. I guess if I wouldn't say a great grey owl, it's really hard for me to pick like one species. Um, <laughs> probably either hooded vulture or a bearded vulture. Oh, nice. Very Definitely. nice. I mean, yeah, either of those species for me as well. I mean, yeah, there's a, <laughs> a bearded long vulture list. in the wild. There was one like floating around in the UK for a bit, wasn't yeah. there, last year? And so it was like everybody flocked to see that bird, but um, yeah, it didn't quite get there. But yeah, I think good picks. I would, yeah, yeah definitely. I agree with both of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To say thank you, Jamie, so much. It's lovely, really, really yeah. nice to meet you. And, um, and, yeah, it sounds like a great project. I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what comes of it and the, the information you managed to, manage to gather. It sounds, sounds great. Yeah, it's yeah. been a real pleasure. And I, I really thank you guys for your support. And um, I'm also really excited. I'll be presenting at a couple of conferences in February and in March. And so the one in February is like the push to get that second component of my analysis relating to um, intrinsic quality. So we'll be getting all that image data finalized. So I'll definitely keep you guys updated with that. Mm. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, if you're ever in the UK and you fancy coming to meet a a hooded vulture face to face, then (laughs) be our guest, honestly. And a great grey owl. Lovely to host. And a great grey owl. Yeah. The whole whole gang. Um, Yeah. yeah, Do come see us. That'd be quite lovely. Hopefully, maybe like when I graduate. Yeah, thank you, Jamie. It's brilliant. Really good to talk to you and super interesting to hear about your project. Yeah, please keep us posted. Thank you. Yeah. We'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks, Thanks, Jamie. Jamie. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Wasn't it really interesting to talk to, to Jamie and find out a bit more about the project that she's doing all the way over the pond in uh, in in the states that's amazing worldwide reach i think i said that in the interview didn't i yeah on, honestly i love talking to jamie i really enjoy our chats with our marion paver award winners and her project just sounds fascinating and she's obviously so into barn owls and so into owls generally it's just really nice to talk to someone sort of really you know really fangirling about <laughs> about barn owls about birds of prey yeah, yeah birds of prey in general and obviously the great great owl thing i'm totally with jamie on that one yeah. you know seeing a great gray owl in the wild whew, that would be a moment that would be amazing absolutely amazing you have to excuse me at this point hannah because i've managed to find in the depths of the office i think almost everybody's broken up for christmas now as we uh, record this obviously bird team and everyone still on site but i've found a mince pie <laughs> <laughs>
Which one is it? Is it one of the posh ones? Because we had oh, some super posh ones. It's one of the posh ones. It came in its own like paper. Oh, wrapping. very nice. So yeah. <laughs> so apologies for the sound, but again, as is tradition on this podcast, I do like to eat whilst we go. <laughs> so lovely mince pie gifted to us. Who gave us these mince pies? That was from our designer, our graphic designer, Paul. Who oh, it's lives... from Paul, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, he lives in Canada, actually. And, yeah, he always orders us and sends some really nice Christmas gifts, usually edible Christmas gifts. <laughs> Paul, it is... Sorry I'm speaking my mouth full, but it is super appreciated. I have no idea if you listen to this or if you'll ever hear this, but thank you, Paul, for <laughs> yeah. all that you do, and especially for sending us this particular mince pie, because it is... <laughs> Mwah! Beautiful. <laughs> And that's coming from someone who doesn't really like fruit. I don't, do I? But put it in a pie, put it in pastry. Yeah, great. And, and call it call it Christmas. Yeah, I'm I'm sold on it. No Pas- problem. Pastry fixes everything. Covers all manner of evils. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it for our first episode. I'm afraid of 2022, and it's been great to delve a little deeper into uh, Jamie's work. And we'll be sure to let you know the outcomes, perhaps, of her studies when we can, Hannah. Um, I'm sure we can probably. Maybe get her to come back or record a little bit for us to let us know how she's uh, getting on with the project she's been part of, maybe. Yeah, wouldn't it and be great to get her over to the UK? She did say, she did hint that she might be coming to the UK next year. Yeah. So wouldn't it be I mean, wonderful I do feel like if we she'd, could She'd probably need over. to do that on her own steam. I'm not sure our funding would stretch to a, <laughs> a pair of tickets to come to the Hawke Conservancy Trust. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it'd be really great to kind of meet up on site and show her everything that we do here do here at base we are a global destination absolutely absolutely we are just look at TripAdvisor. it's um yeah glowing recommendations um and as we go into the new year hopefully quite a lot of you will look at TripAdvisor when you're thinking about where to go you'll remember this little podcast and we'll be able to see you right here at the trust when you come to join us so thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, as always, there's loads more where that came from. So don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss out. If you'd like to know more about anything we've talked about in today's show, then do head over to our social media pages where you'll find our blog that accompanies the podcast and loads more besides. We are at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Oh, it's worth mentioning as well, if you get the chance to, um, please also leave us a review telling us what you think of our podcast. You can do that, um, I think, on Apple Podcasts. Um, good old-fashioned five-star review would kick off the new year very nicely. It really would. <laughs> now, our plan is to be back on the 1st of March this time. As part of our determination to bring you amazing episodes of Nature's the Hoot, but also fulfill our other responsibility we have switched to that slightly fewer episodes every other month yes fewer <clears throat> but better <laughs> um in quality the meantime, over quantity absolutely right yeah absolutely right in the meantime if you want more from nature's a hoot um there's actually another podcast that i was very glad to be asked to come on and talk about um the work we do uh, as the hawk conservancy trust and just kind of Get excited about birds of prey in general with like-minded individuals um, over on the For What It's Earth podcast. It's a sustainability podcast, mostly talking about all of the little ways we can all do things to try to save our planet as it's in crisis. Um, And uh, there was a whole episode that we talked just about birds of prey, the issues they're facing, why they are as cool as they are. So as you can imagine, Hannah, I was in my element talking about all the amazing things about birds of prey. Yeah, how was it? It was um, that's one of your favourite podcasts, I think. I would at that moment, I'd kind of made it in life. I was sat there <laughs> talking to Emma and Lloyd, who who uh, host the show. I've been listening to their show for over two years now, so um, yeah, I was very excited, and and hopefully it all comes out well in the wash. Hopefully we do well, uh, and and uh, I sound vaguely like I know what I'm talking about. I think that's available actually probably before this one goes out. So once you finish listening to us. Go and listen to them as well. Yeah. But in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us uh, before the next episode comes out in March, um, share your stories about nature, how you connect with the wild, or just a hello. Uh, we don't mind, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we're podcast at hawkconservancy.org on the email. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.